I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to 2 Peter chapter 2. And while you are there, I want to read once again a verse of Scripture that I've used for the last four or five weeks in John chapter 15 and verse 19, where Jesus said these words. This is John's gospel. I'll go to 2 Peter after this. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you. It would respect you, cooperate with you, and contribute to whatever you're doing and leave you alone. But he said, but because I have called you out of the world and you're not of the world, the world will hate you. And as I said the last time, one has to wonder why not only would the world hate Jesus, but why would they hate you living a cleaned up life which brings peace and joy into your life? Why would that happen like that? Jesus said he left us in the world, but he has called us out of the world. That is, the life we're to live is not a worldly life. It's not world-centered, world anything else. It's a Christ-centered life, and we live that in this world. Living in this world, in John 7, the way Jesus wants you to live is a testimony against the world. It's against people around you. Your life begins to change. People think you're too radical. You've gone too far. You're putting too much into this. You fail to see that, come on, man, we're just human beings. Nobody's perfect, and who can always do the right thing? And give me a little room to breathe, man. I mean, th that's the world's way of defining the way Christianity ought to be. It ought to be more tolerable to let people have a little fun in their life and not be so, as they say, so narrow. But Jesus said the way that leads to life is narrow. It's not the way of the world. He said there's only a few going to find it. So that's pretty radical. But what you find, if you're willing to pay the price, is more than you could ever imagine. Eye hath not seen, ear has not even heard, or the mind has never imagined what God has laid up in store for those who love him. So we're talking about love, the enemies of Christian love. Christian love is not self-love. Christian love is not selfish loving. It's not self-serving. Christian love is loving as God loves. We are able to do that only because he has first loved us. If he does not first love us, we are not able to love him. We remain worldly people loving ourselves, easily offended, thin-skinned, and ticked off freelance sinners, making excuses, complaining about everything in this world because we don't know how to love God. When you love God, you look at things the way he looks at things. You love people that he loves. You go out of your way to do things for people that he would. You begin thinking out of yourself and into him. And you begin to love him enough that the one supreme goal in your life in loving God is to keep his word, is to obey him, to be faithful to God, to be found on this life serving faithfully. You realize you were a sinner, you were lost. If you've ever been saved, you've had to repent. And the reason you repented is because God showed you how dirty you were, how nasty and how ornery and how polluted and ugly you were on the inside. You might look good on the outside and people might admire the way you look, 
But on the inside, you can't escape the fact that God sees you as you really are. He knows the way you think. He knows why you think that way. He knows why you act the way you act. It's because the world has molded you into something that God has to judge. And to escape that judgment, God showered his love upon you. As Romans 5, 8 says, while you were yet sinners, Christ loved us. He loved us enough to show us the nature of our life and the glory that he's given us. And we want that, and so we repent. We had godly sorrow. We repented. We turned from our sins, and we turned to him. We asked for forgiveness, and he accepted us. We don't accept him. He accepts us. We receive him. And he brings us into his eternal habitations with all of our faults and hang-ups and shortcomings. And then, as I've said for 20-some years here, and then he begins a work of cleansing in your life. He begins a work of taking stuff out of your life that he has to judge. He loves you enough that he doesn't want to judge you. He wants to say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So the word becomes like a sword. His word, if it's preached where you go, the word is designed to penetrate and to pierce and to divide between what is soulish, fleshly, and natural, what the world uses to do its thing, or what is spiritual. It makes clear what God wants. It makes clear what the world is. No man can escape. When God speaks, no man can escape it. It's a wonderful thing when the grace of God reveals truth. That doesn't mean you'll receive it, but God reveals truth to his people. And then whenever you really turn your life over to him and you come to him and you realize that in spite of how bad and ugly your life was, God is willing to forgive you and love you as though you never did a thing wrong in your life. What a merciful God full of loving kindness. Nobody could be like that. And yet he makes himself available to you to come and make his throne in your life and then begins to clean house. He said he would refine the sons of Levi, that he would purge us from our wickedness, that he would take away the stony heart and take away the ugliness out of our life and put in there his own spirit, his own life, Christ in you. God is at work in you, the spirit in you. The whole thing is inside. That's why the most natural thing should be is that your life turns to him in full devotion. Now, when you're devoted to God, you love God because love is a commitment. You can't say you love God if you're not committed to him, that you'll stop whatever you're doing in order to do what he wants. It's commitment. There is no such thing as love in any dimension without commitment, unless you're speaking of eros love, which is passion and sensual love, which is not anything to do with the Bible. If a man loves his wife, he takes a vow to love her. His children come into this world. God requires you to love your children, to devote yourself, to commit yourself to their well-being and not ignore them. To your wife and her needs, to your husband and his needs. Love's a marvelous thing. It keeps you from being ugly, from talking ugly, from sounding ugly, from always venting your feelings and being negative all the time. Love covers a multitude of sins, things that God would judge that he doesn't judge because Love demands that you suppress it. And we're talking about such a noble trait and characteristic dominating our lives 
and recognizing for the last few weeks that there is an enemy to us living like this, and that enemy is the world. Have you found 2 Peter 2 yet? And verse 20, it says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge, somebody's got to teach us, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. I'm not after that verse in its text. Just want to point out this, that we were brought out of a world that is designed to pollute us. Do you see that? For he says, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world. Now, pollutions in several definitions in the Greek dictionaries means moral foulness. Moral foulness a lack of a moral barometer. It's like saying today, doing your own thing. And it's nobody's business how or what you do. It's, hey man, hey babe, do your own thing. That's moral foulness in the eyes of God. That's what pollutes you and makes you unacceptable. I don't care where the church you go to is, it makes you unacceptable to God because your attachment to the world has made you world-like. And you hold on to that as though it's a right that you have, and nobody has any right to tell you differently, and on and on and on and on and on about that. But you notice in verse 19, I use the word corrupted. These are the people who are worldly, who are influencing you. He said, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. He said it in verse 12, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Look in the first chapter in verse four, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, if you have knowledge of them, that by these, that by these what? These promises, you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption of the world. Do you see the word corruption? By lust. Now, when you bring up lust, you think of 1 John chapter 2, where he says, all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is not of God, but it's of the devil. God never encourages you to do the things that have to do with lust of the eyes and covetousness and wantonness and sensual desire. God never promotes that. And the pride of life, being somebody, be all that you can be and make yourself somebody that is admired and looked up to and just somebody. That's not the way God leads us. But that's the things that the world says, do it, man. Be somebody. That's where the wealth and the fame and the glory and the fun is. You got to be somebody. If you got to step over somebody to get there, you just got to do what you got to do, man. Just do it. And the Bible says that's not of God. God's people are pointed of all things to a cross, which we'll get to in just a second. And too many times and far too often when people like yourselves and myself and in the process of being cleansed and being changed into the kind of person God wants us to be from the kind of person he saved, far too often we find complaints with what God teaches us in his word. If you would go back to 1 John 
5, for just a moment, in verse 3, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Isn't that what you believe? If any man love the Lord, he'll keep His word, keep His commandments. That's a commitment you've got to make. I didn't come here just to hear what you had to say or what the Lord has to say. I came here to hear and to do it. If I'm picking and choosing what I want to believe and how I want to live, then it isn't God I love, it's me I love, because I don't want him to interfere with what I want. It's called self-love, me love. The world's full of it, and he got it from the world. It's what the world system does to us. But he says, at the end of that verse, his commandments are not what? Grievous. They're not a burden to you. And yet how many people, how many of us at some point in our life have either said or heard our friends say, that's too hard. That's too hard. They don't have any room at all. You think anybody ever walked away from Jesus because they thought his word was too hard? One time a whole bunch did. They said, this is a hard saying, who can do it? Just like we say in this age, that's too hard. Nobody can live like that. Too hard. You're asking too much. That's because people complain about how hard the word is because of the grip the world has on them. When the systems of man or the systems of the world have such a grip on your life and how you're choosing to live and think and do, that when you hear the word, it's a threat to all of this, then it shows you how worldly we are, not you, us. It shows you when we dread hearing a certain subject preached on, oh, not again. I mentioned this last week. I mentioned worldliness as seen in clothing. Is it possible to be worldly in dress? Now, is there anybody in here who would say there's no such thing as worldly dress? And, you know, if somebody came in here this morning to worship in a two-piece bathing suit, I think it'd be out of place. Wouldn't you? And the reason it would is because it's too much flesh. Now, what would motivate somebody to go to church like that? I don't know. But if you say, well, it doesn't matter what you wear, well, then do the bathing suit thing. What if I came in here this morning, flip-flops, cutoffs, and one of these $20 t-shirts that looks old and wore out? You know, faded and wore out. Look at hair. I don't got much to do with Just spike it up. Didn't shave for two or three days and kind of just being cool. Hey, what's happening? Would that offend you? That wouldn't some of you. I hope it would. But I hope you would like to think, you know, I would like to have a little more respect for what I'm listening to and who is bringing it. I could go down to the beach and see that. But I will say, you know, even back in the old days, we would invite people to come to church and say, I don't have anything to wear because inwardly, in their conscience, they knew that church was not a place you just wear whatever. It's just sort of a special way. You're coming before God, and you're coming before Him in some proper, as good as I can get it way. Church is not a fashion show either. It's not a fashion show. I'm just saying that there is a trend in the world that we begin to take for granted a lot of things, and we're indifferent to what our heart tells us, and we're trying to do what everybody else does. 
I'm not telling you how to dress. Nobody's telling you how to dress or how long your hair can be or how long it can't be. Short is short and long is long. And the Bible says, doth not nature teach you? So there's things inside of you that convicts you. It may not convict the other guy, but it convicts you. Your hair's too short, lady. Your hair's too long, brother. Nobody can tell you what's right or wrong about that. Now, if a lady didn't matter how, what your hair looked like, just get it buzzed. I've seen women with burr haircuts. They're funny looking. <laughs> I've seen men with hair that was much too long. I remember at the beach one time, I'll go ahead and tell them, Paul won't, won't mind, he was a little bitty boy. And we were at a swimming pool and years and years ago. And he walked up to this chair where this guy was sitting. The guy was too big for him to talk to him like that. But sitting there in the chair, and Paul kept staring at him. Finally, the guy looked over at him, and Paul said, I knows you's a man, but you looks like a woman. <laughs> of course, I'm thinking, oh, boy, I can't whip. I'm going to get all beat up over this, you know. I mean, there's just things you know naturally. I promise you this, girls, girls, I promise you this, that when your jeans are so tight that I don't know how you get them on. I don't know if they got some kind of powder or you, or you jump off of something and hope you land in them. But I have seen jeans so tight there's not a soul in this room on your worst day could justify wearing anything that tight because what you're trying to do is show your behind. And that's what you want boys to look at. That's why you wear them because everybody else, that's worldly. Said it again two weeks in a row. Isn't that awful? And yet I am sure, I'm absolutely positively sure that nothing that I've just said is going to change a lot of people's minds because they're worldly centered. I am going to wear it. I want to wear it. I'm not going to not wear it. I could tell you that the origin of earrings years and years and years ago, they were little amulets to keep away demonic things or to protect them. They were some sort of little decorative thing. The Jews didn't wear them. The Ishmaelites wore them, Judges 4. But that's not going to change anything. I remember one time speaking about earrings or pierced ears, actually. You know, you drill a hole in your ear to hang something on it. Like your ears were made to hang stuff on. I remember a lady came up the next week and said, how you like these? Now, that lady thought I was going to say, oh, I'm so sorry. I must have offended you last week. All I could think about her was that you poor soul. You are so set on the way you want it to be that you ignore anything God says that you don't want. Or you're not going to come back. They preach too hard there. They preach too long. The word is so offensive to people. They're offended by it. Jesus once said to his own disciples, does this word offend you? If your heart was right, you would say, you know, he's right. I'm wrong. I got to quit doing that. But when you're worldly and you're world-centered, you say, and you go out of here, because you're worldly. You're a worldly person. That's the way you do it in the world. Your skin is real thin. You're real easily offended. If you don't get voted on, recognized, well, I had a birthday to it, it's in the mind, I ain't coming back to that. You're one of those kind of, because you're worldly. You're just a worldly person. And if you stay like that and you never get turned around, 
the consequences is not good. It really isn't good. But we talked about some clothing last time and talked about tattoos and, you know, the Bible says don't make any marks on your body. Do you think it's going to stop people from doing tattoos? I would like to think it would stop you here because as far as I'm concerned, he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin, you're going to be judged for it. You might have got one before you got here. You can't help that unless you can peel it off some way. But talking about like the preacher in Florida, I was, everybody was all wild about. The first time I saw this guy was the rave of the hour, the healing going on in this place. And here was this guy, blue jeans, a t-shirt, I guess flip-flops or tennis shoes or something out there being cool. And I thought he had a shirt. I thought he had a camouflage shirt on. Maybe he's a hunter. That wasn't a camouflage shirt. That was tattoos. And I personally had a hard time relating to that. Now, if he had had that in other life and come to the Lord and all of that, all right. I mean, he can't help that, but he ought at least put a long sleeve shirt on. Because it is distracting. And if you're going to lay your hand on somebody and there's a big monster coming up at your head, you probably... <laughs> or some big skull and crossbones, I'd be thinking... Y'all you know, at least cover the thing up. And maybe comb your hair. I Get you a razor and shave your face. Why don't you put a little decency in your life, a little moral respect for who it is we're here about. It doesn't cost you anything to do that. And at the same time, you don't have to be in some kind of parade either. Worldliness. Why is it, you tell me, why is it that people that have muscles, I mean bulging, you know, like, like that, big... <laughs> Why is it that people that are so masculine always wearing shirts with no sleeves? Why? And why is it that a lot of them, when they wear shirts with no sleeves and got these big muscles, why do they always have a frown on their face? Are you going to beat people up? Are you bad or what? There's something about it. I've been in a gym before in other years, you know, trying to get myself in shape to go hunting or something. And I see these guys in front of, always in front of a mirror. <laughs> And I'm thinking, well, they love that. And then you see them after they get done, they go. <laughs> You're worldly. That's called the pride of life. It's not of God. Notice me, admire me, be afraid of me. I can hurt you. I could get real carnal about that and say most of these muscle builders I ever saw couldn't fight their way up a paper bag. But if they grabbed a hold of you, you another was another story. It's just worldly. Just the things that people do, the gaudy things that people do to be noticed. Some of these rock groups that sing, they paint half their face and do it. It's all about me. You live in a world that's full of the flesh. You know how hard it is for most people in society to give all of that up and surrender all of that stuff to Jesus? They can't do it. I can't even tell you who I've met who lived to be cool, who could give up cool to be a Christian. Cool is me. You know, I'm who I am. They can't give that up and just become a nobody. They just can't. Just to fit into the the church and let God do a deep cleansing work in their lives so he can use them? 
We got a flyer the other day from some convention somewhere. I didn't read where it was from, or I didn't know many of the speakers. I'd heard of one of them. And then here's the singers that are going to entertain this big convention, and it's the same old story. I think, whatever happened to gentleness and peace and joy, whatever happened to a smile? Is there something that if you smile, you're weak? Is there something about being nice and kind that you're a sissy? Whatever happened to just be a, a nice person, to be a, a kind and, and thoughtful person, to, to put other people before yourself? Look at Ephesians 2 for just a moment. Ephesians 2, verse 2. This is why a lot of people, I'm sure, think the word is too hard. Because where in time past, you walked, I did too, you walked according to the course of this world. Didn't we all? Which was according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit. It's a demonic influence that worketh in all the people who are disobedient. Anything that turns you away from God, makes excuses or whatever it is, is the power of another spirit. Are you with me? It's another spirit. It talks you out of spiritual things and makes you at peace with what you want. And he goes on to say, among whom also we all had our manner of life in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We were molded into the ways of this world. We acted like the world wants us to act. We see it on the TVs. We hear their words. We see their dress. We see the actions and you, marriage is going down the tank and we're just living together and we're just talking like this. And where did all of that come from? It came from the world. Worldly people are getting the attention of the world. Jesus said, I've called you out of it. I've called you out of that. I've called you out of that to walk in newness of life. It's a narrow walk. It's full of tribulation and hardship and sufferings. You've got to let go of a lot of stuff in your life. And people that hear that say, that's radical. It is truth. Radical is the world's influence on you that turns you away from God. It's too hard. But you keep on that direction. And at the end of your life, the biggest disappointment that can ever be realized by any human being is that you don't go to heaven, you go to hell. But you went there by choice. You made the decisions to live your way, think your way, do your way, turn away from the truth. You did your own thing. You were cool. And this is the consequences. What we're trying to do today is talk you out of the world. Talk you out of the world and get you out of it. Turn to Luke 14. Because in Ephesians 2, that's how you were. That's how you think. And that's why you thought the word was too hard. Because, boy, I can't give up all this or that. Like one guy said many years ago to a friend of mine. He said, I can't give up my beer. Beer. Beer, I mean, like... Suds for the kingdom of God? Does that or drugs or a man or a woman or sex, does it have such a grip on your life that you're willing to perish for it? 
You're not in your right mind. And I can prove that you're not. Let me get off the subject. Stay in Luke 14. Let me take a journey here. I do it all the time. <laughs> a man had two sons. One of them wanted his money. He wanted to leave because he was cool. He wanted to get on the scene where the happenings were. He wanted to get out there and have some fun. He wasn't going to be dragging around some old farm work, going to church on Sunday, kind of dull, dismal life. Hey, I, I ain't got more in me than that, man. So, Dad, how about whatever's mine? I like to have mine now. So he gave it to him. The boy headed for the bright lights. As long as he's got money, he had women, he had fun, games. Oh, I could do all kinds of crazy things until his money ran out. And when your money runs out, you thought you had friends. You don't have friends. Your friends love themselves just like you love yourself. We surround ourselves and do a lot of things, not because we love each other. We love ourselves. I like my pleasure. If you're not here, too bad, tough. And when you lose your money, you got no money to go. You can't play no more. They're gone. They don't care a thing about you. And to prove a point, that boy was feeding pigs. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He was feeding pigs in a pig lot. And one day wishing he had something to eat that he was feeding those pigs as good as they had. Then he came to his senses. So before that, he was senseless. <laughs> he was crazy. Wasn't crazy, but he was senseless. His mind was hooked up to a world which doesn't think about tomorrow, doesn't think ahead, doesn't think about what these drugs are doing to your body or what that thing you're taking is doing to your body next week. No trust in God in this life. No, sir, buddy, I'm for right now. And he came to his senses. And when he did, he realized he is wasting his life and the devil has made a fool of him. And in his thoughts turned back to his father, like mine did in 1968, when I realized I was killing myself. And he said, I'm gonna go back to my father and just be a hired hand. I'm just, give me a job. I don't deserve anything you got. I've blown it. He went back. His father put a ring on his finger, put a robe on his son, heart chapter and mark robe. Oh, wow put shoes on his feet, killed the fatted calf. Did he deserve any of that? No, but he was in his right mind. His father took him back. And back to where I was before I went off on that little journey. This world, people in this world, think that by emulating or acting like the world and modeling their lives and their desires and goals and all the cool activities they do after the world. They think they're cool. But all they're doing is setting themselves up to be judged by a righteous God who one time in their life said, don't do that. And they said, I'm too pretty. I got too much to show. And I've got too many boys looking at me or girls I'm going to chase. To give all that up right now, I'll do that when I get to be too old. And they turn away from God they turn to the world. Some never come back. Some never come back. 
And how awful it must have been for that one picture of a man in hell who said, send Lazarus down here to dip his finger and touch the tip of my tongue. I am in torment in these flames. And how worse it must have been the day that Jesus announced deliverance. And all the people he could see over there gone. He lives with the memory that he could have had it better, but he didn't. You see, that's what the world does to you. It entangles you. Remember it said, don't get entangled again. The world entangles you. It lures you in by the lust of your flesh and desires and no money down, fast food. Everything is quick and easy, no problems. Everybody does it, come on. Oh, just do it one time. Just smoke it once. Swallow it once. Puff on it once, whatever you do. Sleep with him once, just once. Come on, I mean, everybody does it, come on. And the next thing you know, you get a grip on you, it's called bondage. And it begins to hold on to you. If you do it once, you do it again. Until one day you're wasted and you're wore out and nobody is really interested in you anymore. You've been all used up. And then life becomes very lonely and very disparaging and a lot of people commit suicide. And some dark power behind you somewhere is laughing his head off as they elbow other demonic influences you allowed in your life. Said this sucker here fell for all of our stories and how easy it was. And all this time we're in the world doing that thing. We're leaving God out of our life because as I've already said, we love ourselves. It's not God we love, we love ourselves. Now, in Luke 14, this is what I'd call the great confrontation. In verse 25, great multitudes are following Jesus. Great multitudes were with him. This was the best chance he had probably up to this time to start a church in Jerusalem, been the biggest church in Jerusalem. We didn't have a church yet, did we? Okay. This had been a chance to have the biggest movement to overthrow the local governments. A great multitude followed Jesus. And he turned, and this was his sermon. Verse 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and his wife and his children, his brother and his sister, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And verse 33 says, And whosoever... He be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, cannot be my disciple. And there were some in the crowd who probably said, that is too hard. I know of no other church in America that would say that. You are radical beyond belief. But who said it? Jesus. Could he have said something that they would have liked better? Take the first thing, verse 26. What a confrontation. If any man come to me and hate not, then he mentions all the things that you hate. Now that does not mean that you must be disgusted with your parents. I can't stay, oh, I, I, hate, I loathe you. Now kids do that today, but that's not what he's talking about here. Because how would he tell you to hate your parents when he's told you another place to love your parents? I mean, the fifth commandment right in the middle, honor your parents. Number five. Honor your mother and father. The only commandment that has a long life given to those that do it. 
He wouldn't tell you to honor your parents and love your parents and then turn around and hate them in the sense that you loathe them and you disgust it and you despise them. Well, put your finger right there and go to Matthew 10 where he mentions this again. This is what Matthew says and this is what it means. Verse 37, he that loveth father or mother more than me. In contrast, you take the word hate and love here. In contrast to your devotion to God and giving him your all and the temptation to put your children or your parents first or before God must be like something you hate. I would never, I would, that, that no, I'm not, I will, I'm not doing that. I don't care what kind of ball game they're playing or what kind of a track meet they're in or whatever kind of activity. My children are not the center of my life. Go ahead, amen. My life does not revolve around my children. It does not revolve around my wife. It does not revolve around my home or me. When it's the way it's supposed to be, my life is focused on and revolves around Jesus Christ who gets all of my loyalty and devotion. What he teaches me back is how to love my wife and how to love my children the way he wants me to love them. But I do nothing before him. And in comparison of my desires and my life and my family, in contrast to God, I hate the alternative, I will not do it. And Jesus himself said, if you want to be his disciple, and in verse 37 here, he says, if you want to be worthy of the Lord, you can put nothing before God. How easy it is for some of you to miss church in order to do other things with your children. I don't know about that. It's not my call, it's your call. I'm just saying that there is a kind of loyalty that I owe God. When I said, Jesus saved me, and he did. And he said, I have bought you. Does that mean I'm his purchased possession? Does that mean that I belong to him? Does that mean that he has a right to inform me of what I'm supposed to do? He does. Do I have a right to protest and say no? I don't have a right to do that, I can do that. Brother Hamilton, you're talking about living a life I don't know anybody's ever lived it. Jesus said only a few are gonna make it. Folks, I don't know, in my family's generation, we're in the last days and it seems like only in the last few years has God begun to unfold his plan of life to people who wanna hear it. Far, far more people have walked out of this place than have stayed here. They don't wanna hear it. I don't want to go that far. I don't want to pay that kind of price because I don't love the Lord that much. I don't love him that much. I love me. I love what I do. I love who I am. I love who I think I am. And if you don't love me like this, then I don't like you. I don't care about you. I care about me. Until the day that you begin to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and say whatever you want. Because he said, 
In the beginning, in verse 37, he said, He that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, as you look at the 38th verse, this is what I want to talk about today. It's the cross. The cross. Jesus clearly said, He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Does that mean you go to heaven anyway? Hey, think about that. Does that mean you go to heaven anyway? Is there a reason the Bible talks about with fear and trembling we work out our salvation? There is something about the way God is going to say things to us that's going to cause us to tremble. It's not a piece of cake. It's not raise your hand and go to heaven. It's not do what you want, drink and carouse and fool around and you're all right. It doesn't say that. And the preacher or the religious system that excuses and dismisses all of our sinful ways by saying, come on, nobody's perfect. I mean, nobody can live that way. The sermon on the mouth, that blah, 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 blah. Then Jesus lied to us because he holds us to it. It's the world that is killing people. And it's the world out of pulpits that's killing people because it's not making white, white, and black, black. It's not making clear what the Word says. In Ezekiel 22, the reason God judged his people, he started with the leaders, the priests and the prophets and the princes. He said they make no distinction between the clean and the unclean. They are misleading my people. And until Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 23, they who teach you make you vain, worthless, useless. Because you think you're all right because you're doing what some padre said and what you're doing is totally different from what this book said. But you don't want to do what this book said. I'm looking for some man to tell me what to do. So we're in the last days, a time of a great departure, a time of a great falling away. When the, listen to me, the love of many will wax cold. We're going to start giving up, we, editorially speaking. Christians are going to start giving up their so-called deeper devotion to God because it ain't working, they say. Begin backing off and backing away. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me and be found approved and acceptable by me, you've got to take a cross. You're going to have to carry a cross. Now, what's a cross for? There's only one thing in your life, and there's only one thing in this world that the world can affect, and that's flesh. There's only one thing about you that the devil can bring the world into your life through, and that's called flesh or self. When the Bible speaks of flesh, the Greek word for flesh, S-A-R-X, sarx, can mean your skin, it can mean your flesh here, or it can refer to human nature or unregenerate nature. As he said in Ephesians 2 and verse 3, we were by nature the children of disobedience. Okay, we were naturally that way because we lived self-centered, self-serving. We looked around at all the things people gave us to do, and we lusted after it, and we went after it because we were self-serving people. 
That's the only thing that we have the devil can use. The devil can't make you do anything. He has to get your attention and tempt you. Put your finger wherever you are and go to James 1. In verse 13, let no man save when he is tempted. He is tempted of God, for God tempteth no man. But what is temptation? Verse 14. Can you read that? Verse 14. But every man is tempted when? Does your Bible say when he's drawn away? Drawn away from what? Obviously, drawn away from his allegiance and his devotion to God. And he's drawn away to what? Something else. What's the something else? The world. The systems of this world. The allurements of this world. The things of this world. That's when he's tempted. He is tempted when he's drawn away. When he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Word means entrapped. Now go back to Luke 14. So how am I tempted? I'm tempted by this world. Who's the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4? Who's the prince of the power of the air in John 12, 14 and 16? Who is the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2? Who is that in Ephesians 6 that we war against? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and the world ruler of this present darkness. That's who entices you. He comes for one reason, to kill, to steal, and destroy you. Make you think you're having fun and that you can have the world. So many people make a ton of money and then begin to see, boy, look what I can do. I can. I'm going to be. Wow, look at me. And one day, the deceitfulness of that kind of thinking, we saw it this past year. In one time, a few months, everything falls apart. You can't do nothing anymore because somebody's made a fool of us. All them times you heard about get out of debt, no, no, many, because of the world's. Now look. Ask anybody that got caught and they'd tell you, I wish I'd listened. That's how we're tempted. We're drawn away of our own lust. It's not God's way we're looking. And we're so sure it's going to work. That's why riches are deceitful. They mislead you. They give you the wrong impression. You think something is so when it really isn't. So he said in Luke 14, in verse 26, if you don't hate your mother and your father, if you love your parents more than you love me, if you'll give up the faith because of your daddy and his inheritance, or if you give up your faith because your child is so embarrassed that you go to that church and they are being persecuted because we go to, why can't we be like other churches? Daddy, what are you going to do with that? You're going to change the course of your life for your child. I hope you got good convictions about what you believe because they're going to be tested. You got to take up a cross. Go to Matthew chapter 16, please. Matthew 16, look at verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his enemies, if any man, are y'all there? He didn't say enemies, he said disciples. If any man will come after me, let him do what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There's three things you got to do. Can you lay that aside and be all right anyway? I'm asking you, 
Oh, that's too hard. Well, no, wait a minute. You didn't write it. Jesus gave it to us. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. He takes himself out of the equation of what's really important in life. Are you with me? Life ain't about you. Life ain't about me. It ain't about what's best and what's in it for me and what I can get. Life ain't about you. Life is about Jesus. You got to deny yourself. Take up this cross. And then make a decision. A lot of people taking up the cross, but didn't follow very far. But if you want to make it, if you want to make it the way he wants you to make it, you got to set yourself aside. You got to deny yourself. You've got to take up a cross. The cross gives two messages to us. It's a place of agony. It's a place of suffering and excruciating pain. There's lots and lots of literature written by medical professionals as well as others about what it must have been like to die on a cross. Just the various aspects of the way you're hanging there and how awful that would have been. And to watch somebody die that way was a horrible thing to watch. I'm not even sure you could ever get that out of your mind to see somebody die this way. And if they weren't dead by sunset, they'd take that spear and <clears throat> jam it up in there and kill them. Break their legs. You know, I don't know how they did that, but they'd break their legs and then they'd take them down and pitch them in a ditch somewhere, I guess. I don't know what they did with them. But it was a terrible thing. And the Bible teaches us that on the cross, the death that took place there was a death that was meant for us. But somebody was worthy enough, clean enough, and free from sin that they would offer themselves in my place. So Jesus was accepted by the Lord, and Jesus went to the cross in my place. He had to pray real hard before he ever got there, but he went in my place on the cross. And throughout the book of Romans and some in Hebrews, it teaches about what that meant. When Jesus died on a cross, you died because it was for you and because of you. Our sins put him up there. There was no reason for him to go to a cross except as a sacrifice, an offering for sin. Jesus was not a sinner. He did no sin. He was a lamb of God, God's offering for my sins. And having been examined by the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers, two days before he died, they could not find any fault. This Jesus went to the cross for us, a vicarious suffering on the behalf of others. He died in my place. And when he died, I died. And when he died, something glorious happened because this is the other thing the cross represents. It represents liberty and release and freedom. A ransom was paid. An atonement was made. Atonement meaning at one meant two who were separated, God and man, by the barrier of sin. Jesus, the intermediary, took our place before God. And God, on the behalf of his death, is willing now to reach out and to receive all who believe in him and are willing to follow him, they'll be acceptable to God. And when he died, we died. 
my weaknesses died. My faults died. Everything died here. I have victory over everything that used to be in my life because, well, what he said in Colossians 2, he spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, the cross. The cross then is a symbol throughout history for a Christian of a place of death and darkness and agony. And at the same time, it is where I look and say, my sins, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins, not in part, but the whole, were nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. I'm free. And so I see liberty in the cross. Now, your personal cross is not the one that he died on. That was a redemption cross. Your cross is the believer's cross. It's a place where you and God oppose each other. It's where you and God meet with his word between you. He said, this is the way, and you say, I don't know if I want to do that. And the attitude in your life, the reasons that you don't know if you want to do that are to be crucified and go to the cross. We call this the crucified life. And unless this is taking place in our life, how can we ever get rid of the stuff that he must judge? Did you know that God loves you enough that he keeps showing you things in your life that you need to quit? Changes you need to make. Did you know that? Why is he telling you that? Because if you don't change, he's going to judge it. He's a righteous God. He can't turn his head at sin. He won't say, well, they meant better. You know, they're not that bad. No, he says this is the way. Walk in it. If he knows every idle word that a man speaks, and if he knows the hairs of a man's head, then he knows what you're doing. There's nothing hidden from God. He doesn't want to judge us, so he wants us to simply deny ourselves. It's like a guy one time was being accused of something that he didn't do. And he said, I'm going to just, to keep this fellow who's accusing me from really sinning and getting in trouble, I'm just going to admit it. it's all my fault. And that'll stop. And the devil said, it's not your fault, man. Don't give it. You're a weakling. No, sir, this guy is going to rant and rave. He might shoot me. So I'm going to disarm him. I'm going to deny my rights and deny my justice. I'm just going to say, you're right. Didn't Jesus give us something like it? If they take you to court and take your coat, give them your cloak also? If they take your tire, will you give them your spare also? Well, wait a minute. Kill that attitude. Crucify that attitude of getting even and vengeance. Crucify it. Well, they did me wrong. Everybody's done wrong. That ain't fair. Nothing's fair in this life to a lot of people. But you're a Christian. Crucify all your revenge and all your hate and all this other stuff. Deny yourself the liberty of getting even. Crucify. Don't give the world of the devil anything else to work with. Shut the door. Die. Then when he knocks on the door and Jesus answers the door, what is he going to do with Jesus? The devil says, I want Hamilton. And Jesus said, he is dead. What do you do with a dead man? The world has no effect on dead people. And as we close, Galatians 2. Would you turn over there? Galatians 2. And while you're turning over there, remember this. Jesus said in Luke 
14, he said, you got to bear your cross if you want to be a disciple. And you got to forsake all that you have. If they slap you on one cheek, what do you do with the other cheek? That ain't fair. Jesus didn't say it was fair. He said it was right. If they sue you at a court of law, you don't sue back. That's not fair. He didn't say it was fair. He said it's Christian. You read the Sermon on the Mount on your knees. Read it slow. Put yourself in there. This is me reading the three short chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and read it. It's the highest caliber of life a man can live. He had to sit down when he gave this, and the hillside was full of people, and he made sure they clearly understood, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And he talks about hypocrisy and being unloving and unkind and hateful, and he came against all of it. Galatians 2 and verse 20, as we come to a close, Paul writes, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it's not I that lives if I'm surrendered, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me point out one thing about faith, because we preach about faith a lot. Whose faith is it? Look at verse 20. Whose faith is it? The life I now live, I live by the faith of whom? Where did you get it? You got it from him. Did he not give you his faith? We are like a seed. We're to let it grow and develop and use it because it's how we please him. We please God by taking him at his word without seeing any results first, by acting like it's true. Not very many people would do that because the world taught you that that's crazy. Well, all right, that's dumb. So they can't. They can't. Jesus told some Pharisees once, he said, why is it you do not understand my words? Because you cannot hear them. Well, they heard what he was saying. They, they had no meaning. He's the only one that opens our eyes to understand the word. And he said, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but I made a big decision to let Christ live in me. I honor him by surrendering my way to his word. I deny myself, because I have some things I don't want to do. I deny myself, and I let him have the preeminence in my life to do whatever he wants. And the life I live, I live by the faithfulness to him that he charges me with. I can do all things through Christ. Look in Galatians 5 and verse 24. And judge yourself with this one. And they that are Christ have done what? They who belong to Jesus. Let me put it that way. Do you all belong to Jesus? They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lust thereof. Why would they do that? Because if they don't, God, in spite of who they are, who they think they are, if they don't do that, he will judge them. Let me tell you something about judging his own people. God's going to take you to heaven. If you're his, he's going to take you to heaven. He's going to get you there. And if you're dragging your feet, he is going to have a foot-dragging committee to visit you, and he's going to chastise yourself real good. Because 
The work that he started, he's going to what? Finish. Finish. That's right. And he that started a good work in you, Paul said in Philippians 1, he's going to finish it. So you might find yourself doing, yeah, I don't know about that stuff. And he is able to smite thee, put thee on thy back that I might learn thy statutes. He is able to overwhelm you. He's able to make you dream a dream, see a vision. He can make you hear a voice. God can make you do a lot of things to bring you out of a dark place. He's going to judge into a place where you can find his favor. Because he's God and he loves me that much. So I can never assume on God. Well, I go to church and I'm going to heaven. No, you got a life to live. Well, you're saying you're saved by works. I'm not saying you're saved by works. You're saved by faith in what he did. But you're not saved apart from works either because the very fact that you are saved commands that you make your calling and the election sure about what you do. So, in chapter 6, verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, me or this church or any of us, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. I don't know if we're there yet. I'm still reminded in my private life, my personal quiet times, of how many ways that I don't want to give up things. Oh, they don't have such a great grip, the, the voice says. Oh, they don't control you. Boy, they're there whether it's the internet, whether it's sports, TV programming, whatever it could be. It's for different people have different problems. To crucify ourselves is to take ourselves out of the equation that the devil can't use it. And if you crucify yourself, you're not alive to the world anymore. Oh, you're still alive, but God puts things in perspective. And you no longer live crucifying him freshly every day by denying what he taught, confessing you're his, but then living like you're not. You don't do that anymore. Things have changed. The cross is probably the one thing in our lives that's more important in you living the life next to the message of faith than anything I can think of because that's how you prove that you're for him and not against him. You align yourself with God by taking all your opposition and you crucify it and you say, I will not utter that with my mouth. I won't say that. I won't go there. I won't wear that. I'm not going to look like that anymore. I want my heart to be at peace with God. I want to know that I have his favor. We won't go back there, but I'll re remind you that in Luke chapter 14, verse 28 through 32, Jesus gave the illustration that before you jump into this and put your hands on this plow, you better count the cost. Didn't he? He said, what man's going out to war and fighting a man that's got a bigger army than him? When the big army comes, does he not go count his own army and see how strong he is first before he engages in a war? He said, you too, before you jump in, oh, I want to be a Christian. You better count the cost because it's going to cost you everything. God is going to put you on your face and require you to forsake all. And you don't know very many people who are willing to do that. But that's the way it is, if you want to be his disciple. So this is my closing statement. Before you ever get to a cross, you're going to have to go to a garden. 
Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would teach us, show us, reveal to us not only your truth, but your loving ways to make us aware of how much you really do love us and care about us. And to know that you're not leading us in a dismal life, but you're leading us into a life of victory and peace. I ask you in the name of Jesus to look over our audience, not only here, but wherever else in this world that people are watching or listening. And give us the courage this day to make big, right decisions. And to not fall prey to the devil anymore. Bless this word as seed to the hearts, which I pray is good soil. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? Oh, I am crucified with Christ is good.